Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all involved in some form or another. I'm not guilty. <laughs> the dead won't buy me. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Janelle. And we are back again from the comfort of our own homes, <laughs> practicing <laughs> that extreme social distancing extreme (laughs) extreme we've got another great show for you today i think it's gonna be it might be a rough one (laughs) (laughs) but first let's head over to the newsroom So this week, our news comes from The Guardian. This is coming out of Brazil, where Flor Delice dos Santos de Souza, who is sort of billed as this evangelical gospel singing lawmaker, she's she's gained quite a bit of celebrity, but she has been accused of assassinating her husband. The story gets a little weird when you find out a couple of things. First, that her husband is actually her previously adopted son. Say what now? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he was adopted in 1991 at the age of 14, and I believe she was 30 at the time. The two of them got married seven years later, which is a little like, you know, not illegal, but I think just a little morally uh, strange. (laughs) Morally strange. It's a great band name. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) The second thing that's a little strange is investigators are alleging that she had help from at least seven of their 52 most, I'm sorry, 55 mostly adopted kids. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of kids. That is. Now, her husband, Anderson DeCarmo, was gunned down outside of their home last year uh, in 2019 in June. Although Florida Lease has claimed that it was done by thieves. On August 24th, 2020, police went out and arrested five of Florida Lisa's kids and one grandkid, but they have yet to arrest her due to uh, parliamentary immunity that Brazilians enjoy. <laughs> now, I will also say Florida Lisa adamantly denies these charges, but there are other um, members of Congress that are trying to get her stripped of her title in order to facilitate the arrest. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure what's going to happen there, but this is just one of these weird cases that I was like, huh, that's that's different. <laughs> yeah. Let's head over to Netflix and Kill, where we are talking about a documentary on Netflix called Tread. 
Uh, are you familiar with this one at all? I have watched it, and I am also very familiar with the Killdozer case. So, <laughs> yes, so, uh, yes. <laughs> so, in the small town of Granby, Colorado, a man named uh, Marvin Hemeyer, who is uh, often referred to as Marv uh, in the documentary, <laughs> he was also a master welder. He's pushed to his breaking point after a dispute with the town, and so on June fourth, two thousand and four, he took a modified sixty-three ton bulldozer and rampaged the town, destroying numerous homes and businesses. The bulldozer itself was fortified with 30 tons of steel and concrete and armed with three high-powered firearms. The whole rampage lasted over two hours and caused more than $8 million in damages, although uh, nobody was hurt or killed in the incident except for uh, Marv. So it's it's an interesting tale. Definitely. <laughs> the, the one thing that I really like about this uh, particular documentary is towards the shortly before he decided to destroy a bunch of stuff in this town, he had actually made a series of audio recordings mm -hmm. um, that kind of chronicled his uh, journey from becoming really disillusioned with the town and county government and the state government and being sort of this the little guy that's being pushed around and screwed over when they talk to the other players in this whole saga they sort of tell a different story from what uh, marv was alleging happened as far as all of these things that they were requiring of him um, and his business and the disputes he had with some of the neighboring businesses and townspeople it's pretty interesting, the ex escalation of all of this. I don't know. Um, do you have any thoughts on this one? It's, I don't want to say it's funny, but it's, it's just, it's just so ridiculous. Like, yeah, to the extent in which this person goes to make their point. Um, if there wasn't a rampage and it was just a dude trolling around in this and take on a very different tone mm -hmm. um but i don't know it gives me a lot of like feels in terms of like anti-government kind of uh conspiracies that we've covered before and you know cover-ups mm -hmm. and mishandlings and all that all the like waco or ruby ridge is what i feel when i you know yes hear this story but you got a hand to the guy. He really went all out. And he really was yeah. a, a master welder of sorts. Yeah. Ru you're spot on with uh, Ruby Ridge was the first thing that I thought of, too, because it's very similar in their kind of anti-government sentiment. One of the things that I, I think that they also have um, some similarity with was this idea that they were being guided by God. Um, yes. Kind of giving them this message to um, especially with Marv, he talks about this on his audio recordings is like, God's telling me that this is the thing I need to do. And I even decided to wait um, and not do anything with this bulldozer over the winter, um, mm -hmm. like not start any of my modifications to it until after the winter thinking maybe something would change my mind, but like nothing came along and changed my mind. So this is the path that God has set me down um, to redeem the little guy almost, mm -hmm. which is like, okay, <laughs> let me, let me stop you there. <laughs> so definitely check that one out. It's on Netflix right now. I think it's as far as documentaries go, it's pretty well put together. It's nice to have that audio from the past and these people involved, but it's, it's an interesting one. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. There is i know in my section a lot of it's a heavy one i mean really there's a lot of discussions of uh child abuse and torture i just want to say up front because i mm -hmm. it's yeah. it's gonna be tough <laughs> yes yeah yeah there's definitely some murder of children 
Yes. So be warned um, if you are sensitive to these things. Maybe skip this episode. But if not, then I will tell you that we are talking about some really bad babysitters this week. The anti-babysitters club, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, the opposite of the babysitter, which would be somebody who actually sits on babies. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I would say so. Oh my goodness. A a lot of Krampus feels, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. It's going to be a really a description of why you should be careful who you leave your children with. Or Uh, just not have children. (laughs) Yeah. Or that. Or that. that. Um, Yeah. yeah, That's also a good solution. (laughs) But. I'm going to start it off with the tale of Gertrude Banaszewski and the murder of Sylvia Likens. Now, Sylvia Likens was born to parents Lester Cecil Likens and Elizabeth Betty Francis and was the third of five children in the family. Lester and Elizabeth led an interesting life themselves and provided for their family by traveling with the circus selling candy, beer, and soda. It was a profession that allowed them to travel around the state of Indiana during the summer, but financially, it wasn't the most uh, lucrative thing in the world. And to add to that, Elizabeth and Lester had an unstable marriage um, as well. And the kids, Diana, Daniel, Jenny, Benny, and Sylvia, now Diana and Daniel and Jenny and Benny were both fraternal twins. And the other thing is that Jenny had a childhood bout with polio. And so she had a limp, very recognizable limp. But all of the kids would often help out with selling foodstuffs for their parents. But Elizabeth and Lester became concerned about having their daughters travel around with them, particularly Jenny and Sylvia. So they made the decision, both for their safety and uh, for their education, to find a more permanent residence for Sylvia and Jenny. By July of 1965, Elizabeth Likens had been arrested for shoplifting. And Lester had decided to return to work in the carnival circuit. And most of the children at this point were left with their grandparents. But for Sylvia and Jenny, Lester instead decided to board them with a family friend named Gertrude Banaszewski. Sorry. (laughs) Don't worry. Mine will also have horribly long last names (laughs) (laughs) it's you know it's been a while since i've had a really difficult last name to pronounce Mm -hmm. so i thought i'd just put one in there yeah mine are all polish so this is gonna be really fun (laughs) (laughs) now gertrude herself has an interesting upbringing as well she was born in 1928 in indianapolis and was the third born of six siblings Uh, When she was 10, she watched her father die from a sudden heart attack. She dropped out of... Yeah. Uh, Which is traumatizing at 10 Mm. years old, I'm sure. Yes. She dropped out of school at the age of 16 to marry an 18-year-old named John Stephen Banaszewski. The two of them had four kids, but would get divorced 10 years later. She then got married again to a man named Edward Guthrie, but it didn't last very long, and the two got divorced after a few months. She then began a relationship with another man named Dennis Lee Wright, who was abusive, and her past husbands had also been abusive, so it was definitely the cycle of abuse. But Gertrude, when she had their child... Right, pretty much left immediately. This put the whole Banaszewski family into financial strife because Wright was the financial provider. And to add insult to injury, Gertrude's health started rapidly declining. She had a few unidentified illnesses. She wasn't eating much. She had stopped basically any form of hygiene. So when all was said and done, Gertrude, who was 36 years old, she was a sole provider for seven children. Paula, Stephanie, John, Marie, Shirley, James, and Dennis Lee Wright Jr. She suffered from depression and she was incredibly underweight. 
So a lot of stuff going on in Gertrude's life to contribute, I think, to some of the what I would consider mental illness, especially when you're talking about depression, some of these other things that we will talk about that she does in her uh, child care (laughs) situation. Big hint. They're not great. Um, (laughs) Back to June 1965, when Sylvia and Jenny moved in with the Banaszewski family, Lester Likens, who was paying Gertrude $20 a week, had given her instructions to, quote, straighten his daughters out. Initially, things were pretty normal. There wasn't any like abnormal or excess of abuse or discipline. Sylvia and Jenny spent time with the Banaszewski kids and they would like do homework at the house. They attended Sunday school. It was all peachy keen. But when the Likens payments began arriving a day or two late, the situation in the house rapidly changed. Gertrude became enraged about the late payment and she said, Quote, I took care of you two bitches for nothing, end quote, and then forced Sylvia and Jenny to lay across her bed while she beat their bare buttocks with a paddle and a thick leather belt. Shortly thereafter, there was an incident where Sylvia had gone out and collected bottles for some to use for some cell for change. um, And then she was going to take that change and buy some candy. So. When she came home with the candy, (laughs) yeah, when she came home with the candy, Gertrude again became enraged, accused her of stealing, and she again received a beating with the paddle. It was pretty soon um, after that that Sylvia was really the only one of the sisters that Gertrude uh, focused her abuse on. And I've seen a couple of theories as to why this was. They range from... Gertrude being jealous of her youth and her looks um, to (laughs) Sylvia just being far too outspoken. Yeah. They talk a lot about Gertrude seeing Sylvia as wasting uh, her her good looks and her youth and being jealous of that. I don't know. It's a weird thing. But one thing is for sure, Sylvia was definitely the target. Among the... Many instances of abuse described in various reporting. There was a time where the family and the Likens had gone to a church picnic. Gertrude was upset about the amount of food that the girls had eaten, which Mm -hmm. earned them a being when they got home. In a different instance, it had been revealed that Sylvia had a boyfriend from Long Beach that she had met while she was traveling with her parents. At some point, um, a comment was made that Sylvia had allowed this boy to feel her up, basically, mm-hmm. which completely infuriated Gertrude, who screamed at the girl, accused her of being a prostitute, and told her that she was pregnant because she had let a boy touch her vagina. And this was all followed up by uh, Gertrude repeatedly kicking her in the crotch. What? (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. Yep. When Gertrude got tired, her oldest daughter, Paula, took over. After the beating, Sylvia went to sit in a chair, but Paula refused, saying she wasn't fit to sit in chairs. And from that point on, Sylvia was only allowed to sit in a chair uh, with permission. This was sort of the beginning of a really incredible cycle of torture that included the entire Banaszewski family, which is just wild. Not long after the crotch kicking incident, Sylvia and Jenny uh, had, (laughs) and one of the rare... I'm sorry, but that was just a lot for me to handle, (laughs) crotch kicking incident. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And from what I gather, it happened multiple times um, for various reasons. But I think it had something to do with the abuse lining up with this, uh, like, sexual anger. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, Mm -hmm. you know, anger at her being even slightly sexual with somebody from the opposite sex. Yeah. 
Um, so not long after that, in a very rare instance of sort of retaliatory action, Sylvia and Jenny had told some classmates that they had seen the two older girls, Paula and Stephanie, having sex with men for money. Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, came to the house later and beat Sylvia. And from that point on, Gertrude encouraged him to return for regular beatings, telling him that he could use Sylvia for judo practice. Oh, my God. Yeah. Over the course of a few months, Sylvia was slammed into walls and floors, used as an ashtray, thrown down the stairs, and intentionally cut, followed by having salt rubbed on her wounds. She would then be cleansed of her sins in a bath of scalding hot water. All of this was behavior that Gertrude encouraged the entire family, along with many neighborhood children to participate in. She was just like inviting all these neighborhood kids like, come on and beat this girl up. Too much. Now, you're probably wondering, like I was at this point, how were so many people involved in this without any word of these horrible beatings and abuse getting out to like literally anybody, like a public official, the schools, the, you know, whatever. Like, how did this, how were so many people involved in this and nobody knew about it? Which is a great question, but one that I'm not entirely sure has a great answer. Mm-hmm. In August of 1965, some new neighbors moved into the house next to the Banishevskis uh, named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. They also had two young children and immediately thought Gertrude might make a good babysitter simply because of the number of kids that were already under her care. Mm-hmm. So th- they decided to host a backyard barbecue to meet the neighbors. When Sylvia came out, it was obvious that she had this huge black eye. And so the Vermilions began asking questions to which Paula proudly said she had done it and followed up by throwing a glass of steaming water into Sylvia's face. This was never reported. A couple months later, Phyllis went back over to the Banaszewski's residence to borrow something where she again saw Sylvia walking around with swollen lips and a black eye uh, and kind of walking around in a daze. Paula, again, very proud of her work, demonstrated how this happened by bringing out a belt and beating Sylvia with it. Again, the Vermilions failed to report this abuse. There was one attempt to report the abuse when a parent of one of the neighborhood kids called to uh, report a girl living at the Banishevsky house with open sores all over her body. And she had actually not, at this point in time, had not attended school in a few days. And so they sent a nurse to the residence where she was told by Gertrude that Sylvia Likens had run away and she didn't know where she was, but that the open sores were a result of poor hygiene. And the school did not investigate further. So there was definitely opportunities for this abuse to be reported and documented, but people. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, we've talked about this before. It like, really, be, I think because of the time period and the location, it's a very much, and I still see this today in where we live currently, a mind your own business kind of a situation. Um, mm-hmm. especially since child abuse and even spousal abuse was not taken seriously up until what the late nineties and we're in what Indiana, <laughs> which is like, yeah, they're yeah. still 20 years behind. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, played a, a major role in this, um, entire situation. I have mm-hmm. watched, uh, a couple bi- biopics about this, um, case. And, um, you know, I've read about it before in regards to researching child abuse. So it's, and still every time I hear information about this, it's like, how, why, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. 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 
Um, especially because the majority of people involved in this abuse, like Gertrude was the oldest person mm-hmm. there. Um, most of these people were yeah. kids. And the fact that a kid did not let it spill out to somebody with more power, like a parent or a teacher or administrator or whatever, is kind of amazing yeah. to me. There's many other details that I will spare you listening to. Um, but needless <laughs> to say, shit got really bad. Mm-hmm. I, there's a lot in here that I left out because it just is awful. It's so horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of bad details involved in this case. It's Yeah, it's pretty rough. Even the stuff that I did include is not the worst of it. Like, as bad yeah. as that sounds, worse shit happened. Stuff was so bad, in fact, that Sylvia became incontinent from the severity of the abuse and beatings. And so so because of this, she uh, began wetting the bed. Mm -hmm. And when this happened, Gertrude decided she needed to be moved to the basement. She remained locked downstairs for a majority of the time without food or water. Most of the time, she was naked and tied up. A 14-year-old boy named Ricky Hobbs became sort of this, like, personal assistant when it came to beating Sylvia, and he was following any orders given by Gertrude. Now, there has been some speculation by some reporters that Hobbs and Gertrude were in some sort of sexual relationship, which allowed her to persuade him to help, but this hasn't really been substantiated, and it wasn't really... um, proven during court it's just i could see it being true but also i could see it not Mm -hmm. the final round of abuse started on october 21st when sylvia was brought upstairs from the basement and tied to a bed she was told that if she could sleep through the night without wetting the bed she would be allowed to sleep upstairs again unfortunately this didn't happen um, and gertrude forced sylvia to i am so sorry for this She forced Sylvia to masturbate with a glass Coca-Cola bottle in front of all of the Banaszewski children. This was followed by Gertrude stripping Sylvia naked, tying her down, and beginning to carve and burn the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, um, on her stomach. Gertrude started the carving, but she became tired after two letters and demanded that Ricky Hobbs finish the job. Hobbs and 10-year-old Shirley Banaszewski took Sylvia to the basement where they attempted to carve the letter S on her chest, but one of the loops was done backwards and it actually ended up looking like a three. After this, uh, many neighborhood children were paraded in to witness the etchings on Sylvia's body, saying that she had gotten them at a sex party. But the next day... Gertrude kind of realized that Sylvia was in basically in the process of dying. She was very Mm -hmm. close to death. And so to kind of cover her ass, she forced Sylvia to write a note that she dictated that alluded to her running away and saying she had been beaten by a gang of boys. So this is what uh, Gertrude told her to write. Quote, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and because Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids, end quote. That doesn't sound coerced at all. No, no, not at all. Which it literally the fact that it's like, oh, and also like I may I spent this money that Gertie doesn't have. And also I peed on this mattress and also all these doctor bills. It's like no kid would say that. Come on. Yeah. The initial plan was to take Sylvia to the woods where they would leave her to die. Uh, But Sylvia had actually overheard them discussing this plan and attempted to make an escape. Unfortunately, she was stopped by one of the boys and was severely beaten with a curtain rod and then thrown back into the basement. On October 26th, 
Gertrude attempted to have Sylvia brought upstairs. Uh, Stephanie and Ricky brought her up and placed her in a bathtub fully closed where Gertrude was intending to give her a warm, soapy bath. But once they realized that she was no longer breathing, they took her out and attempted CPR. Although even at this point, Gertrude contended that Sylvia was faking her death. Oh my God. Yeah. Realizing she was dead, Sylvia was taken back down to the basement and stripped naked. They then called the police who arrived at the residence and were given the dictated note by Gertrude. Now, in the first time ever speaking up to anybody, Jenny Likens, who was still living at the residence and was forced to participate in the abuse of her sister, managed to get the authorities' attention, telling them, if you get me out of here, I will tell you everything. So that statement, combined with the discovery of Sylvia Likens' body in the basement, led police to arrest Gertrude, Paula Stephanie, and John Banaszewski, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard for murder. (sighs) Following an autopsy, Sylvia's body showed over 100 cigarette burns, various second and third degree burns, severe bruising, muscle and nerve damage. Her lips were nearly severed from how hard Sylvia had bit into them as she was dying. Mm -hmm. And her vaginal cavity was nearly swollen shut. Uh, The cause of death was determined to be brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain and shock, which is like, it's extreme abuse, extreme abuse. When it came time for trial, Gertrude Banaszewski decided uh, she denied any knowledge of the torture or abuse, claiming that it was totally the children's fault. It was all them. God. She entered a plea of not guilty, which I'm also like, this bitch is so classy. Blaming it on the kids. (laughs) She didn't do anything. Okay. The trial um, is almost a story in and of itself, uh, which definitely do a little Googling and check that out because it was crazy. But. At the end of the day, Gertrude was found guilty of first-degree murder. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder. Ricky Hobbs, John Banaszewski, and Coy Hubbard were found guilty of manslaughter. Both Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life, um, with the boys receiving two to 21-year sentences. Gertrude and Paula decided to appeal their case all the way up to the Indiana State Supreme Court, where they were granted a new trial based on the prejudicial atmosphere. But Gertrude was still convicted of first degree murder, while Paula instead opted for a guilty plea um, to voluntary manslaughter. Ricky, John, and Coy were all released in 1968 for good behavior after serving two years of their sentences. Paula served a total of two years of her sentence, and Gertrude was released on parole in 1985. She immediately changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa, where she died of lung cancer in 1990. So that is the story of Sylvia Likens and the worst babysitter on the planet, probably. Yeah, Uh, I'd say so. This is why I gave such intense warnings at the beginning of the show, because it's not going to get any better from here. (laughs) No, I will say that yours is far worse than mine. Yeah. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So... Uh, for mine, I decided to stick close to home and pick a case out of Illinois, uh, as I am wont to do so often, just to highlight all of the wonderful flaws 
with the state that I reside in. Mm. Um, <laughs> so yeah. my case will cover Elsbieta Plakowska, and this will take place in Naperville, Illinois. So very, very close. Oh, yeah. Yes. So on October 30th, 2012, Elsbieta Plakowska was babysitting her son, Justin, who was eight, and a friend's child, Olivia Dworakowski, who was five, she would suddenly and inexplicably murder both of the children. Wow. Yes. Okay. So we're just going to get that right out of the, the way. Right out of the way. <laughs> uh, Plakowska was a 40-year-old Polish immigrant residing in Naperville, Illinois, with her husband and two children and their dog. Elzbieta was a house cleaner and babysat on the side, and her husband was a long-haul trucker and was away from the home very often. In October of 2012, Elzbieta's father died, and according to her older son, Matt, and a few family friends, she started exhibiting strange behavior. Friends stated that Plakowska started to drink a bit more and was talking about God and the devil a lot. The family were avid churchgoers already, so discussing God wasn't too out of the ordinary, but the introduction to this obsessive talk about the devil surrounding her younger son, Justin, kind of set off some some red flags Mm. so she was kind of scaring her older son matt and around october 28th uh elzbieta stated she had a vision of the devil surrounding her young son justin so she had him watch some like religious films to kind of like counteract this i guess okay as you do uh the following day on the 29th elzbieta got into a small argument with matt and he went to stay at a friend's house her husband was also away on one of his trucking gigs so it was just her and justin left in the house on october 30th marta dworkowski asked elzbieta to watch her daughter olivia marta was a nurse and had to work late Elzbieta was to pick Olivia up from school, go to their condo in Naperville, and watch her until around 9.30 p.m. Now, Elzbieta picked up Olivia from school along with her son, Justin, and took the two to church. Elzbieta then took the two along with her dog, Tootsie, to Dorokoski's condo for the rest of the night. Sometime before 9 p.m., Elzbieta stabbed her son, Justin, 173 times with a kitchen knife. Oh, my God. She then stabbed Olivia 94 times and then proceeded to kill her dog and the Dorokovsky's dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, yeah. holy <laughs> shit. That is a lot. It's, it's a murderous rampage. Elzbieta then yeah. left the condo and drove to the family uh, friend's home where her older son, Matt, was staying. According to court documents, Elzbieta arrived covered in blood around 10 p.m. and told her son that an intruder came in, attacked her, and stole her phone. She said that the blood was all hers, and her son noticed that she didn't have any wounds on her, so he was kind of like, how the fuck is that your blood? So (laughs) her son, Matt, who was a teenager, immediately called 911 and told them that his mother had arrived and relayed to them exactly what she told him. And then they asked for the address of the condo. So he had to go into the car to get the address from their GPS system. Uh, While he was in his mother's car, he noticed that there was a bloody knife on the floorboard. Oh my gosh. Now this is where the timeline is going to get a little bit messy and we're kind of kind of bopping back and forth a little bit here. According to records, the police arrived at the condo at 11.24 p.m. Now, Marta Dorokowski arrived at the condo a little bit before this. Um, so these, this time of this timeline is kind of happening simultaneously for Marta as it is for um, Elzbieta. Okay. Now, Marta arrives at the condo. The cops had not yet got there. Um, so she noticed that Elzbieta's car was not outside and all of the lights were off. So she called Elzbieta's cell phone and received no answer. So then she immediately calls the police to report her daughter missing. Marta never goes into the house, okay? Yeah. This is probably the smartest thing that anyone in any of the cases has ever done that we have ever covered. (laughs) Oh my god, for real. So she calls the police and the police tell Dorokoski to come to the station, which... When she arrives, they later tell her that her daughter was dead. 
Now, this was all happening at the same time. So Matt's calling the police. They're being dispatched to the scene at the same time that Marta's calling the police to say that her daughter is missing. When the police arrived, they found the children dead in the bed of the master bedroom, covered in blood, and the dog, the dead dogs nearby. In the sink, they found dishes and a bloody knife, half-heartedly jammed into the garbage disposal. So she used more than one weapon in this. Also weird to think you can get rid of that at a garbage disposal. Yeah, let me just throw this giant kitchen knife into the garbage <laughs> disposal. Totally. Oh my gosh. Elzbieta was immediately interviewed by Naperville police officers at the hospital from 1224 until 137 a.m. on October 31st. Detective Richard Arsenault conducted the interview, and Detective Wyatt Kowal, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong because he's very Polish, <laughs> uh, he was present to do a little translation because he was fluent in Polish. Um, she spoke English, but since Polish was her first language, she was a little bit more fluent, so they decided to interview her mostly in Polish. Gotcha. The interview was video recorded, and in the interview, she denied killing the children and stated the same stalker story to them that she had told her son, Matt. She was interviewed again a few hours later after she had gotten some medical treatment, which that was also recorded, and in this one, her story changed. Elzbieta said that she took Olivia and Justin to church on the evening, and she had the priest bless her. And after church, they went to Olivia's house. The kids were playing in the bedroom when she saw something black, like a black apparition that said, kill the kids. Oh. So she told the kids she was going to kill them and told them to pray. She told Justin that he had the devil in him and she stabbed him everywhere to make sure that he was killed in her words perfectly so that he would go to heaven. She then told Olivia that she loved her and then stabbed her just like Justin and then killed the dogs. After that, she went back to the church and knocked on the door. No one answered, so she called the church and left a message saying that she had killed someone today. She then threw her cell phone out the car window while she drove away. She then drove to the family friend's house because she had planned to kill Matt and their family friend, whose name was Moody. She said that she would have to kill her husband, Arthur, too, if he had been there because she wanted everyone to die a quote-unquote perfect death so they all go to heaven oh my gosh i literally i know you can't see me but your job i was listening to that whole description with my mouth open like (laughs) holy fuck that is wild yeah so elzbieta plakowski was charged the murder of her son and olivia and two counts of animal cruelty for killing the dogs nice at trial She did not dispute that she committed the charged offenses, but she did uh, assert that defensive insanity, which we knew was coming. Of course. She then waived a jury trial and proceeded with a bench trial on September 12th of 2017. So they didn't go to trial until 2017. This happened in 2012. Just to put that into perspective for you. Oh, wow. Yeah. There was testimony from various jail personnel that the defendant was placed on suicide watch in the jail. On October 31st of 2012, she was observed pacing, talking to herself, grunting and growling, pretending to cradle a baby, making stabbing motions, and kicking the wall and toilet. Totally normal behavior. Mm-hmm. On November 5th, the defendant said that a child was sleeping on the blanket in her cell, and she also acted as if she were pulling clothes out of an imaginary dresser and putting on pants. Jail personnel gave her medicine to calm her down. It did not think that the defendant was faking her symptoms. Oh, my gosh. These are from this entire couple next paragraphs are from court documents I found. So buckle up. Oh, yes. So they called an (laughs) expert forensic psychologist to testify. He believed that that, uh, Elzbieta was suffering a psychotic episode when she arrived in the jail on that date. Um, He opinioned that the psychotic episode resolved itself between November 24th and December 12th. He diagnosed her with a depressive disorder. He did not believe that she was malingering or embellishing her symptoms. They also called another doctor to testify, and he testified that a person could have a single psychotic episode at some point in their life without being previously diagnosed with a mental illness. He did suspect that... uh, she had a manic depressive disorder, which is kind of like bipolar light. 
But he also acknowledged that there were moments of lucidity when she stated that she made up the story and threw out her cell phone. Now, a third doctor, Dr. Oblosky, testified that the defendant was not satisfied with her marriage. She felt that she had to make sacrifices, such as forgoing her own education to raise her children. She also felt that her husband, Arthur, was mostly absent. Um, Elzbieta did not seem to consider that Arthur's absence was because he was working to support the family. Uh, she said that she did not value his contributions to the family. And she essentially felt that she was doing all the work and that Arthur was not helping. The doctor also testified further that Elzbieta tried to make friends with her employers because she did not like to be viewed as hired help. Although Elzbieta described her family friend Moody as her best friend, the feeling uh, apparently did not seem to be reciprocated by that person. Of course, this was commentary after the fact. And also, you know, he found out that she was going to kill him. So, anyway. Uh, <laughs> mm. That could have a little effect. <laughs> yeah. Although he stated, this doctor stated that previous doctors had some inaccurate observations of Elzbieta. He kind of stated that Elzbieta's description of her visual hallucinations were not consistent. She first said it had uh, the the apparition that she saw had one head. Then she said that it had two heads. Then she said that it had no heads and that she could not describe whether the shadow had fingers or claws. Mm, okay. The doctor also concluded that it was not like an authentic hallucination because it kind of seemed to have all of these, you know, descriptors from things that you could have read or seen in a movie. And the doctor stated, in addition, generally, if someone hears voices, they hear them speaking in their native language. So here's a key point. Because the defendant's native language was Polish, Dr. Oblosky believed that her description of hearing the voices speak in English supported a conclusion that the defendant was malingering, which if you don't know what the term malingering is, I've said it a bunch. It means you're faking being sick. <laughs> So the doctor further stated that if the defendant experienced hallucinations, that she would be able to remember them consistently over time, that they would be in her native tongue Polish, and that it wouldn't be something that just like happened and then stopped. It would be consistent. The thing about the uh, native language is interesting because it does mm -hmm. make a lot of sense. But I think for people who are aiming for an insanity plea that don't take some of these things into account, it's like... <laughs> Well, yeah, like, of course, you know, it's very obvious to see if these hallucinations are real or not. Mm -hmm. So Elzbieta Plakowski was sentenced to concurrent terms of natural life in prison for the murders. The intentional first degree murder of Justin and Olivia is what it was stated. The defendant was also sentenced to concurrent prison terms of two years for each count of aggravated cruelty in regards to the murders of the dogs, which I was like, wow. <laughs> the sentences for animal cruelty were served consecu con consecutively to the natural life sentences. Everything was, you know, all at once instead of one after the other, which it wouldn't matter because it's natural life. Um, but... Yeah, that is the case of Elzbieta Plakowski. Plakowska, sorry. Wow. And I, I want to never read anything like this ever again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was... Sorry to have to put you through that, but mm -hmm. that was... I, um, I blame you. <laughs> you can 100% blame me for this. <laughs> if you are thinking of taking a babysitting job <laughs> think again maybe <laughs> just check out this podcast first hi everyone i'm ashley and i'm justine and, and we, we make, make up the cutaways podcast we're watching the good the bad and the essentials of the romantic comedy genre so far, we've fallen in love with Cary Grant, met up with our terrible friend, pal Joey, and had the desire to run our fingers through Patrick Dempsey's hair. Join our slumber party for your ears every other week, brought to you in stereo from our blanket fort in Hollywood, California. You can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Our digital blanket fort can be found at thecutaways.com. If you are the social butterfly types, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as at Cutaways Podcast. Bye! Well, guys, that has been our show. Um... 
Thank you for joining us for another week of murdery talk. <laughs> um, get yourself some nice tea and a warm blanket after this one, maybe. Just yeah. relax. <laughs> yeah. Before we go, we do want to let you know we are participating in an event that is happening right now as you listen to this episode. Right now. <laughs> right now. Janelle, you want to tell us what that is? Yeah. Again, if you have not been conscious for the past couple of months, <laughs> we are part of the Elgin <laughs> Fringe Festival, which is this glorious, now this year, virtual event where you can see all kinds of amazing acts, not just us, um, for a small price. Or if you buy a festival pass, you can see all of them. And it is happening September through the first part of October. Um you can hear our amazing, weird, spooky, ooky tale and see us, see our faces, you guys. Not just hear our weird voices in the ether. You can look at our faces. Um, you you can actually to- see us when we're talking, <laughs> although I don't know why anybody would want to do that. But <laughs> Right. You can see all the awkward faces that we make at each other while we're recording. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but you can head over to yeah. com or Side Street Studio Arts to find out more information to get your tickets to hook it up to our videos. Um, Elgin Fringe Festival is something that happens yearly, and it is an amazing event every September. Um yeah, just keep an eye out for more cool stuff that they do and watch us make a mockery of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it'll mm-hmm. be a great time, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it was a great if time. <laughs> you enjoyed this ep- <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more episodes just like this at badtastecrimecast.com, where you will also find our merch store um, if you need a hoodie we're like going into fall so i feel like hoodies mm-hmm. are going to be all the rage a thing of necessity <laughs> yeah all the rage um you can also find our donate page there uh if you wish to support us on patreon there is a back catalog of exclusive patreon content um of various things lots of stuff I mean, we're we're coming up on a hundred episodes, so if you take Ugh. that plus bonus content, <laughs> yeah, don't remind there's me. There's so <laughs> much. Yeah, <laughs> girl, we've been at this a long time. I know. Um, we're coming far, up on far how many years than I ever thought we would be. <laughs> Just it'll, yeah, it's still a long time. Yeah, almost four years, guys. <laughs> Longer than I've held down some jobs. It's so. basically like we're graduating from podcast high school. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. <laughs> to move on to podcast College? university. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can find all of that information at badtastecrimecast.com. Do you have anything else before we wrap up today? No, guys. Just keep looking out for uh, cool stuff that we have coming down the pipe. And um, if this pandemic never stops, can't stop, won't stop, maybe we'll do some more virtual stuff. If you guys want to see that, let us know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on that note, we will say our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in two weeks. Stay safe and adios. The Babysitter's Club. Say hello to your friends. The Babysitter's Club. <laughs> <laughs> Some form.